This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What is it about art museums that calls us to visit, that inspires us to create, and that moves us as viewers as well as artists? Today, we encourage our listeners to plan a field trip to their local museum. And while doing so, we'll challenge you to look at the art with a different eye. Our artist-in-residence, Jill Curtilis, says, It's not necessary to understand the subject or even to like the genre of art in order to learn something from it. When she visits a museum, she often uses targeted observation. I can't wait to learn more about this subject. Welcome to the Quilting Arts Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the world of contemporary art quilting. I'm Susan Brubaker Knapp, and I'm here with my co-host, Vivica Hansen-Tenegra. Hey, Vivica. Hi, Susan. It's December. Yay. I know, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> it's on us faster than you can ever imagine, right? I have a friend who says that she just can't wait for warm weather. She's going to Argentina right after Christmas. She's like, <laughs> get me out of here. And for me, it is, it's, I guess every part of the year, every time of year is my favorite time of year, but I love the change of season and feeling cold when I go outside. Yeah. So I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, we had a long, hot summer, and it's nice to have the cooler weather. We're having some glorious uh, late fall weather here in North Carolina. So I was out raking leaves and uh, getting ready to put the house and the yard to bed for the winter. Yes, but also the late fall color that comes. I have to say it's so inspiring, and it's my color, that orangey-red, rusty brown. I just love it. So I've been enjoying that, too. Yes. Yes. It's funny when I go through my Instagram feed, it's almost like themed by color. Like I'm definitely in that orange yellow mode right now. And you're so inspired by nature and going outdoors and everything. But that reminds me, you just had an open studio, didn't you? How did that go? It was great. Yeah. It was through my local county um, art guild and it was two different weekends, the first two weekends in November. And it's the first time I've ever done something like that. I opened up my studio to the public. I had a lot of people come. Um, everybody wore masks and we tried to social distance. And I met some fabulous people. I sold a lot of work. I was super excited. That's wonderful. Yeah. And it was very interesting to see what sold. I sold a lot of things that were in the lower price point, the maybe under $200. But yeah, a lot, a lot of work. And one person who bought like, I think something for everybody she knows for Christmas. Oh, that's amazing. That's so yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Now, did they go for the framed art and the, you know, like matted pieces, or did they go more for things that had to hang on the wall like quilts normally do? The All the framed pieces went. All really? the smaller new work went. And so it was it was what I had suspected and prepared for, but next time I'll prepare even more and have more of those pieces ready because- I think there's a certain price point that's attractive to people who go to that kind of an event. So it was really a learning process for me and I enjoyed it and I, I learned a lot. Right. I did and have three different people who tried to walk through my sliding glass door. 
So I learned that I need to put up big stickers on my sliding glass door. I, it was the most bizarre thing. So there's always <laughs> stuff like that that you can't ever prepare or expect. Oh, Susan, I would probably be one of those people. I would be so <laughs> stunned and blown away by your artwork. I would just like totally walk through a glass door. Absolutely. I don't know what it was. It was weird. So eventually we took to having my husband stand by the door and just open and close it for like six hours. <laughs> he's your concierge. Yeah, yes. he's your doorman. Oh, that's yes. that's hysterical. Oh, mm-hmm. well, I'm glad it was so successful for you. And I hope that you're getting more inspiration for the next time that you do it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And then right after that, I had big problems with my website. So I've been spending the last week or so desperately trying to get my web- website back up and had to learn new software to do that. And so that has been another big adventure, but oh, that's probably a story for another day. Well, you know, I think our last podcast uh, talked a little bit about the business side of art and having a website is so critical to being taken seriously as an artist and to really give that outward view of who you are as an artist. And so I was happy to hear that you'd updated it. And I jumped on, I think it was yesterday, and I really love your new website design. It's very pretty, very accessible, really nice. Yeah, it, it's so funny how when something's wrong with your website, or at least for me, I feel professionally naked. It's so much a part of who I am, a representation of who I am online. And when it's down, I feel really panicky. So it was important for me to to get it back up and to have a good presence. And there's still a lot of tweaking to do and some fixes, but it's getting there. Even those big websites like the one that we use for our company occasionally have problems. I know anyone anyone who's dealt with it before, it's very frustrating. But like you said, it's really, really important. So I'm glad that you've updated it and you're feeling good about it. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And in between, I found some time to go to some museums. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that today. But yeah, I... I have an art buddy in Lyric Kennard. She lives in Raleigh, which is about a half an hour from me. And we have been, last summer, we went to a couple of museums in South Carolina and in Charlotte. And then we've gone to a couple in Raleigh too. So I, I'm excited to talk to Jill about um, how she looks at art in museums. I also just spent some time on her blog reading very eloquent, beautiful posts um, that I highly recommend to everybody because they make you think so much about your surroundings and what you can learn from taking photographs and observing things around you and how much of a difference that can make in your own personal art. Absolutely. I've learned a lot from reading that blog and I've learned a lot from thinking and talking to different people about how we observe art. You know, um, this past weekend, I went to an experiential museum. I went to the Mystic Seaport Museum, which is Mm. all about seafaring and whaling and the history of that really incredible part of New England um, life from the 17th and 18th centuries, mostly into the ninth, into actually the 20th century, which I find absolutely astounding to think about. But, um, That was an interesting museum to go to as well, and it has an entirely different kind of feeling than a straight art museum. So very, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. 
I've been to Mystic, but we were with young children at the time. So we just did the aquarium, which is fabulous. Mm -hmm. But that museum sounds great. It's cool when you can go to one that is very specific on one thing because it, it makes you think about how many worlds there are out there, how many, you know, very specific places that some people live in their whole lives. I mean, think about the the people who were whalers and how their whole life was just so caught up in that one thing. And yet they found time to make art. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I feel so connected to with people that are craftsmen, high craft artists, etc., no matter what, we can find time to make art. So absolutely an interesting place to go. I'm looking forward to bringing Jill into our conversation too. Why don't we take a very quick break and then ask Jill to join us? Great. Jill Kirtle's fiber art is the culmination of years of professional art experience. Her photography provides the underlying composition for her work. The stitching allows her to celebrate and express textures in a way that photography does not. And the work is influenced by her background in graphic design. Through her work, she strives to bridge the craftsmanship and traditions of fiber art, often called women's work with the strong concept and composition required in the fine arts of painting and photography. In 2014, Jill retired from doing commercial design and began working full-time as a fine artist. Her artwork has received many awards in international and national shows. In 2015, Jill spent a month as the artist-in-residence at the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and her studio is located in the McGuffey Art Center in Charlottesville, Virginia. In 2019 and 2021, She was juried into the Quilt National Show, receiving the Award of Excellence in 2021. This year, Jill received the Janome Innovation in Artistry Award at the International Quilt Festival in Houston. Congratulations, Jill, and welcome. Well, thank you very much, and uh, I appreciate that. Also, I have to say, you guys have really... uh, inspired me to get back on my website and update it. (laughs) (laughs) That's what happens when people start looking at your website. You're like, oh no, here we go again. No, your earlier comments are well taken and and I I will heed them. (laughs) Jill, we're thrilled you're here. All three of us met, was it in 2019 at Quilting Arts TV? Yeah, I think it was 2019. Yeah, you would come out. It's now. Everything prior to, I think it was February 2021, or 2020 is the total blur. But you had come to Ohio, and we had such a wonderful taping of Quilting Arts TV. You showed us lots of techniques. But I think one of my favorite things that we did is we sat around the table and had lunch together. And this is always what Susan and I had talked about when we were talking about doing our podcast is that we wanted to bring other people into the conversations that we had had when we were sitting around the table at Quilting Arts TV, having lunch and just jazzing about art. And you talked specifically about going to museums and about looking at art and how to really look at art differently. And that just has spurred so many thoughts for me because it opened my mind up to basically going to museums and looking at it differently. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were talking about? I think you called it targeted observation. 
Yeah, um, it sort of started, I took a cousin of mine to the Chicago Art Museum years ago, and she is not an artist. And we started looking at paintings, and I realized all she was really looking at was the subject matter. And I think that that's true for a lot of us, that we look at the visual subject in front of us and say, oh, I'm not interested in that or that. So <clears throat> the next time I went to a museum, I decided, wait a minute, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to pick a specific thing. And actually, I have to re reiterate that, that I, I did worry about it because the subject I picked was heads, faces. And I spent the whole day just looking at the faces in every kind of artwork I could find. And I realized I was looking at artwork that I had never looked at before and had just discounted as ick. And I found wonderful things. All of the myriad of ways that people made eyes or made noses or however they portrayed the feeling that they wanted in that face. And it started me thinking about that, of how else can I look when I go to a museum? What, how else can I target my looking? So I started doing that more and more and looking at just brush strokes, going in and just looking at brush strokes or going in and just looking at complementary color schemes. How, how many different complement color schemes could I find in any of the paintings? Earlier, Susan, you were talking about going to museum with kids and uh, Vivica you mentioned going to to that museum and I, th I was thinking another thing that made me think about this was I went to a museum with one of my kids when they were about mm, 13 years old and at the Chicago Art, Insti uh, Chicago Art Institute we came in the back door and always walked through the armor section and the medieval work and I always literally walked through it just to get to my old friends and the Impressionists. <laughs> and that day, of course, a 13-year-old kid, what do they want to look at? They want to look at the swords and the armor and all that. It was fantastic. And I suddenly realized there were motifs and textures and things in these metal objects that I had never paid attention to before. And so that's, that's really where this all started, this whole thoughts of mine. Isn't it incredible when you go with someone who's looking for something very different than you? I I probably have even told this story before on this podcast, but I, I love going to the Yale Museum of Art because it's just 20 minutes from my house and I would bribe my kids. We'd go to Shake Shack after if they could behave in the museum. <laughs> so youngest kid was probably 12, maybe 11, and I lost him because my favorite floor was actually the more modern floor. Um, there were a bunch of Solowitz around. There were Miro's and all sorts of wonderful things. And I was looking around, looking around, couldn't find my son. And I found him lying on the floor underneath a actual sculptural piece that if he sat up, he would knock the whole thing <gasps> over. Oh, no. <laughs> and talk about looking at art differently. He could, he wanted to look at it from underneath. And I thought, you know, that's brilliant, but how do I get him out <laughs> without ruining a million dollar piece of art? Uh, this soak is so right because I mentioned when we were talking before the show that I had recently been in Paris and at one of the museums there, there was this beautiful, beautiful marble sculpture of this man laying down. And there was a little girl who was maybe five years old who was literally doing the same thing, laying down on the ground, trying to look at the bottom of his hand, which was 
elevated out there. And you're right. I mean, the kids, they don't know how they're supposed to look at it. Yeah. That's right. It's 3D. It's 3D. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had some interesting conversations with both my kids in art museums when they were younger because I would try to get them to look at things from a certain way. And it, it's it's better to just let them tell you what they like and what they don't like. It leads to better conversations, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, my older daughter, when she was younger, absolutely detested anything that was abstract. She just didn't get it. And mm-hmm. so we had a lot of interesting conversations about that. So sometimes it, you you learn so much about the people that you go with, whether they're your children or your spouse or your partner or your friends, you start to learn things about them as human beings because you're discussing art. One of the uh, most fun museum experiences I had was I once went with a group of my friends. There were four of us in total. And none of us wanted to just march as a group through the museum. So we said, okay, we're all going to go on our own for the morning. We're going to meet for lunch. And then after lunch, each one of us will take the others to their piece that they want to show us. And it was amazing because at lunch, we we headed off after lunch. And none of us had picked anything close to the same thing to show the other people something we liked. And it was a a great experience from that standpoint. That is really a fun idea. Mm -hmm. You know, have you ever thought about writing a guide for a museum going? (laughs) That would be fun. It would be really neat for museums to offer that. Uh, You know how they sometimes they have like scavenger hunts for kids, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's almost like they need to guide the adults too, or give them a framework Absolutely. or some way of th- of looking at art and thinking about art. Maybe some museums already do that, but I mean, I would love to see your suggestions. You know, it seems to me it's a real luxury to be able to do that too, because it's one thing if you live near a museum and you can go again and again, but like if I go to Washington DC and I'm going to the Smithsonian, I have to see everything. Well, obviously I can't, but you know, I have a limited amount of time. I want to see as much as I can. I have my bucket list that I want to say that I've seen and be able to think back on that. But if I could go back four times in a year or five times in a year and go and look at brush strokes and look at faces or look just for the color yellow, I think it could be a really, really different kind of experience. Just change your buck, your list of what you want to look at when you get there. Instead of being the famous paintings, just say, I'm looking at the artist's work, not at their painting. And, and just go from that standpoint. You know, I always think people ask me what artists I really admire. And I always am a little hesitant to ask because quite frankly, it's the Impressionists, um, and particularly Degas and uh, Toulouse-Lautrec and and the usual. And I always feel a little weird saying that because people go, oh yeah, well, who doesn't like those? But it's been a real change for me through my life. I liked all of those early on when I didn't know much about art. And then I realized I discounted them all as I got sophisticated and uh, painterly and all that sort of stuff. And I have come full circle back to them because of those. And now when I look at them, 
I don't care that there's ballet dancers in any Degas painting. His compositions just blow me away. I mean, who else would crop a body right in half and put it on the edge of their painting? Or who else would have... There was one painting that I saw that was just unbelievable from a a compositional standpoint, the repetitive shapes that were within the competition, the composition, excuse me, and just amazing things like that, that once you get past that initial, oh, I like this artist, or I don't like this artist, there are artists I don't like at all, but I really admire their brushstroke, or I really admire their composition, or whatever it might be. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So most of your work, Jill, seems to me to be very painterly even though you don't use paint on your fabric. And I say that you don't use paint, except I know after reading about the quilt that (laughs) won at Houston, you do use paint. But for the most part, you don't use paint. Um, And I think think back to some of those pieces that I've seen, and I can tell you study brushwork because of the way that you apply thread to your work. Well, it was interesting because after I started doing fiber art, my son long since left home and lived elsewhere, came home and saw my uh, fiber art. And he went, Mom, they look just like your paintings. And he was not talking about subject matter. He was, uh, I mean, texture has just always been my thing. And so even when I did paintings, one of the reasons I don't paint is because, A, I loved oil paint and my hands wouldn't stay out of it. I would be scratching the surface and doing all this stuff. And that's not good when you're using oil paints. But yes, I'm painting you know, I look at glazes and painting. And then when I come back to my fiber art, I use organzas and tools and anything I can, uh, produce bags, anything I can to replicate that subtleness of a glaze on a painting. I work from dark to light on my, most of my work in the fabric, just like a painting, most many painters anyway work from dark to light. And so, yeah, a lot of what I used to do in painting comes forth in in this and new stuff that I see at the museums. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you also incorporate a lot of photography as well. Yeah, all of my uh, work, uh, I guess I shouldn't say all, most of my work originates from my photography and uh, goes from there. And I've so enjoyed the the blog posts that you've done where you've posted some of those photography assignments. Oh yeah. Because your, your comments really make me look at those photos in a different way. And I've learned a lot through what you've posted. Well, there again, I would say even those uh, photos are not necessarily a subject photo. I will do the same thing as when I go to a museum, like when I go on my walks every morning, I'll say, okay, today I'm just going to look at thistles or seeds, or I'm just going to look at flowers, or I'm just going to look at the sidewalk, or I'm just going to look, I'll pick a certain thing 
texture or something to look at and do the same thing. Um, but photography to me is my sketchbook. It really is my sketchbook. Now, I do the same thing when I walk. Some days I will look for just the color green and all the different variations within mm-hmm. that. Um, what do you think it is about that that is such a valuable experience? Is it that it it forces you to narrow in and to highly focus on something? I would almost say the opposite. I think it makes you expand. It makes you realize there isn't one green. There is this myriad of greens that go from black to white and every green in between there. Uh, Yeah, I think that it's more that an expansion than a focus. Yeah, yeah. I also wanted to ask you, um, among the museums you've visited in your lifetime, which ones made the biggest impression or left you with feeling like you had had a, a really serious life-changing experience? Oh, this is, uh, well, hmm. maybe there's too many. <laughs> no, I can tell you it would be the very first art museum I ever went to. When I was 16, my sister is 10 years older than I am, and she was 26 and working out in San Francisco. This was back in the dark ages, by the way. And she flew me out to visit her in in San Francisco. And in the morning, she said, well, I'm going to go to work. And she told me which bus to take to go to Golden Gate Park and go to the art museum. My family was not artistically minded. We had never been to an art museum, but I had been voracious in looking at art books and knew all the painters and everything from looking at art books. Well, I walked in the front door of the art museum that day, and there was an eight-foot square Monet water lily. (laughs) I just burst out crying, (laughs) turned around, and left the museum. It was just like I I had only seen it as maybe a four-by-four-inch paint in a book, you know? And Uh. so that that really was life-changing. The other one that I would say is if anyone happens to be in western Massachusetts, near Adams, Massachusetts, go to MoMA, the Massachusetts Museum of Modern Art. I think I don't know what the name of it is. Exactly. Mass Mocha. Mass Mocha. Yeah. Fabulous museum. I mean, the, the building itself is fantastic. And I am, in general, not a huge fan of the more modern art, but talk about Sol Witt that you mentioned before. They had just rooms and rooms of his work. And then they have a whole building for Anselm Kiefer, which anyone who's into texture has to love that man. So that's another great, great unknown museum, I would say. Yeah. You know, in this area, it's, it's almost like a Mecca for people who who love modern art especially and um talk about some experiential art there too you can they have uh exhibits that you walk into and the color and the light changes etc it's an old factory actually Mm -hmm. i think probably a a paper factory or something right on a river but very interesting museum yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. that's a good question I actually, um, my we took our kids to Paris a few years ago. It was a fabulous family vacation. And my daughter, watching her stand in front of Van Gogh painting and just realizing that this was the real thing mm-hmm. was, I think she didn't leave crying, but she she definitely was moved to a point that I had never seen art move my kids before. Well, actually, I can't say that because if, if Christopher would get underneath a sculpture to look at it. I think that's quite moving too. But it it 
it's just so incredible how it affects everybody so differently. Yeah. So differently. When I was just recently in Paris, I went to Monet's home and garden and lily pond. And before then, I had been to the Orsay to see the the Monet's and everyone there. And we went to the gardens, and it was just amazing to actually see the very place that he had been painting. And, the you know, obviously, they've repaired the bridge and the boat and all that sort of stuff, but they've replicated them. And so, when we got back to Paris, I had to go right back to the Orsay and see again. And it, it was just an amazing difference how his stuff looked after seeing where he had painted them. It was very interesting. It's almost like we all love to go to artist studios, like all mm-hmm. of those people that traipsed through Susan's studio last weekend and the weekend before. We love to see where people work. We can't imagine how they can come up with these amazing pieces. And yeah. sometimes just seeing that that location helps us understand them a little bit better. Well, the, the place that I have my studio at is public it's owned by the city, and so the public is welcome. We're required to keep our studios open to the public at all times. In fact, just this morning, I just had this lovely uh, couple of women come through, and they just were so interested in understanding the process and seeing everything from beginning to end and all that. And and it, it was as rewarding. When, when someone does that in my studio, I think it's as rewarding for me as it is for them because – I realize that they are, in fact, interested in the process and the making, which for me is the big deal, much more than they are just the finished artifact. Yeah, because to a lot of people, making art is magic. Mm -hmm. If they're not artists, they think of it like magic. And so when you show them how you do it, they will watch you for hours, a lot of them. I've done that. I demonstrated during my local quilt show years ago in Mooresville, and it was amazing to me. People just gathered around while I was doing thread sketching um, and quilting and were just completely absorbed in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. We've all watched those videos of potters. That, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. <laughs> The wheel is going round and round. Nothing changes there, but we can't can't quite get our heads around how they pull a piece of clay into a pot. It's, well, yeah. I have to say, I actually painted a painting last week because I had watched, I think, six seasons of the British show, The Best Landscape Painter of the Year in Britain. Hmm. And they, they have you watch everybody making their art, and it's fascinating. And I just thought, I've I got to paint again and try this. It'll never see the light of day, but it was fun. (laughs) I'd like to see it. I bet it's better than you think it is. (laughs) Might get you started on a different path. Yeah, Uh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about part of your blog post that I read was about the Michelangelo Sistine Chapel exhibition. And Lyric and I went to go see that in Charlotte this summer. And the same day we went to that Van Gogh experience. So Mm. two very kind of similar and different things at the same time. So for those of you listening who don't know, the Michelangelo Sistine Chapel exhibition is, I think, all of the figures or a lot of the figures on the Sistine Chapel that are on canvas. So they're like printed versions of Michelangelo's art, but they're made to be the same size as what is actually on the ceiling. But 
they're in front of you so that you can walk through the whole exhibition. And it, it really struck me as more of a Bible class. There's more information about who the people are who are portrayed and what they symbolize or what they're important for doing in the Bible. More, more of a Bible study than an art exhibition, mm-hmm. but it, it was interesting and it was weird at the same time. Yeah. And I found this, I had the same feeling about the Van Gogh immersive experience too. So tell me your thoughts. Cause did you see the, the, no, no, I haven't yeah. seen either. And uh, not to sound too blatant about it. I won't go to either. <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, and I think part of that's because I'm a maker that when I make something, it should be seen how I made it to be seen. And when you take those things off the, out of the Sistine Chapel and put them in some warehouse or even a museum at eye level, instead of people having to be in awe and raise their heads up to the sky to see them, I, I just don't see that as the same. Plus, mm-hmm. again, because I like brush strokes and I like texture to see the surface. You can't see the surface of it. I'm sure that it's a lovely thing, and I'm sure somebody's making a whole lot of money off of it. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's not – I would rather see that money going to people who are making art now and stuff. And the same thing – I've talked to several people who have gone to the Van Gogh and loved it, said it was an immersive experience and all that – and that's all good, but boy, give me the Van Gogh Museum in, the, in Amsterdam instead, where I can see the real thing at the size it's supposed to be seen, not where his brushstrokes are, you know, three feet tall. Yeah, I think it was just a totally different experience than seeing art in a museum. It was more of a multimedia um, experience, the Van Gogh one. And the other one, like I said, was more educational for me. Yeah, it was yeah. like, let's learn about who the people are in these paintings and why they're important. And yeah. not that one is better. They're so different. You can't even put them in the same category. Yeah. But it's yeah. interesting that they're, it's almost like they're trying to get people who maybe don't normally go to a museum to experience Van Gogh. And so from that point, I can say, well, maybe people go to that and they're like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. Maybe I need to go study Van Gogh or go to a museum and look at the actual art. So I don't know, maybe it serves that purpose. Yeah, maybe. I don't know either. Um, (laughs) I was disappointed that they weren't being, uh, the proceeds were not going to a museum. The proceeds, it's a whole different thing than a museum show, I guess. So, Sort of entertainment. Yeah, it's entertainment. Mm-hmm. But, and, yeah. and that's fine. You know, it's absolutely fine. It's just not what I would go to do. Yeah. Another question I have for you is, why do you think it's so important to see original art in the time that we live in now where you can see almost everything on your computer screen or in books? You talked a little bit about that as far as like the scale and being able to get up close when you saw the Monet water lily piece. But why else is it important to you? Um, I can't. I, I, I think every fiber artist in the world can answer that one. <laughs> and that it, it's all about the surface, you mm. know, and the scale, absolutely the scale. But I can't tell you how many people have seen my art or contacted me after they've seen my art in Houston or at any other show and said, oh my gosh, your stuff is so much more intense than I realized it was. 
or so much more intricate or so much more layered. You know, looking at it on screen or, or something, it looks not all that different than a photograph, but get to see it. And so I just think that there's, it goes back to the whole thing about museums. What to me, what it does is it takes a piece of art and limits it to the to the subject matter. And I have not been on a jury and Lord knows I, I respect jurors tremendously, but I don't know how they can jury a show when everything that they're looking at is being shown at basically the same size, the same scale, and the same surface. And more power for the ones that actually pay attention to like the details and stuff like that. I hope they do. But once again, I, you know, I can look at these, the virtual exhibits, but you go to the real exhibits and it's just an entirely different experience. And I'm happy for the virtual experiences during um, the pandemic. I mean, thank goodness we had them. So to me, it's almost like going to a library. I've been to a lot of libraries and I love going and going into a section and looking for the book that I'm looking for. But one thing I really, really love is not necessarily finding the book I'm looking for, but finding a book I wasn't looking for (laughs) and just stumbling upon something. It's the serendipity of the moment that you find something you're not looking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I find that with looking at art too, and especially when you look in a museum. So Jill, I have a question for you. I'm going to, I'm hoping next week, going to the... Uh, Fine Art Museum in Boston to see Fiber of a Nation exhibit, which is a lot of quilts. And I really can't wait to see this. But this is going to be a different experience than going to an art museum and looking at sculpture or metal armature or paintings, etc. I will look at a lot of other stuff while I'm there. What do you think that I should be looking at as someone who's going to specifically look at quilts? Well, I think there's when you can start looking at technique and see if there are things that you would want to bring to your own work from that. And I say that meaning bits and pieces, not not the entire piece. And look at uh, surfaces again and just see what's, what's happening with the surfaces that they're doing. I unfortunately was in Boston over Thanksgiving and could not make it. The the tickets were sold out. I couldn't get to that show. So I'm jealous that you're going to it. I hope it'll be interesting to hear what your thoughts are. But I think um, when I go to any fiber art show or quilt show, it's mostly that. I just want to see what innovations are happening. And again, the scale is something that I do look at. Like, how does this appear? Why is it that scale? And the why is a big one for me. And when I look at a big quilt show and I look at a piece, my first question is very often, why is this fiber? What made it better to be in fiber than to be in oils or be a photographer? You know, if it's based on photography, what, what did the fiber bring to the photo that wasn't already there? Or so on and so forth. So that's the other thing that I'd look at. What, what, what did fiber bring to this piece that could not have happened any other way? It's a great observation. Hmm. And I think, you know, this is my own personal opinion now, but 
it's back to uh, photography as the basis of quilting, which obviously I do. But when I talk to people who use other people's photography or artwork as a basis for their fiber art, I get concerned for them, not necessarily concerned for the copyright and privilege and all that sort of stuff, but that that fiber artist has just robbed them of robbed themselves of picking a composition, picking colors, picking that noticing something that no they had no one else in the world had noticed. And they're taking a big shortcut and really stealing from themselves the opportunity to go, oh, there's something that no one else in the world has seen that I want to make art of. And uh, that's important. I wanted to go back to your blog because I found a quote that I absolutely loved. And I'll read this section from your blog. We are constantly saying, can't you see this too? And, oh, you must see this. The landscape painter tries to capture and explain the moment of clarity they had when looking out on nature. The portrait artist doesn't just paint the resemblance, but the inner person as they saw or felt it. The photographer captures a moment that perhaps only they had the acumen, patience, or luck to witness. The abstractors capture essence or movement or the core of something that needs no subject. And I think in that you really get to the the heart of an artist as wanting to say, see this through my eyes. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a, a fabulous professor in school who said any artist worth their salt should be able to create art by looking at eight feet around themselves. And... In one photography group that I was in one time, there were people who were lamenting about how, well, you all live in great places. I don't live where that's interesting or you have <laughs> snow and we don't get snow and all this. Excuses, so said, okay. excuses. Exactly. So I said, okay, folks, for the next month, I will shoot a photograph every day that's within one block of my home. And I did. And They were some of my favorite photos that I've ever shot because limiting myself to that made me look in a way that I had never looked at those mundane things before. Well, you know, I say this all the time, that having having rules and those limitations makes you a better artist. You're a better artist if you don't have every single tool, if you don't have every piece of fabric, if you have to mix your own paint colors because you only have three paint colors. You, if you have to use the nail polish in your vanity cabinet instead of paint, <laughs> Lori Cisse, right? <laughs> you know, but it's absolutely true. Having limits actually makes your mind expand. One of my favorite quotes is from Chuck Close, and he said uh, that inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just go to work and get busy. And I think that's that's so true. I mean, you, you just do it. You know, Nike has it right. (laughs) (laughs) You know that we have a quote at the end of every podcast that we do, Jill. And and you just did it. You just did it because (laughs) I had written that one down because we had, when we had talked a a year and a half ago or so, when I had done an interview for the magazine, you had, you had shared that particular quote. And Chuck Close is one of my favorite artists. And that is also one of my favorite quotes. And so I have it. (laughs) Susan and I were going to use that one at the end, but Susan, I have one more for you. 
Just in okay. case. Okay. <laughs> the other quote is by Mary Oliver. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. I have a bracelet that I wear every day of my life with that quote on. Wonderful. And it's absolutely, I think, the essence of life and that wherever you are is good and wherever you are is beautiful. You just have to look at it. And when you see it, tell somebody. Perfect place to end. That's what artists do, too is tell people about it. Mm -hmm. Say, look at this, look at what I noticed, look at this beauty, here it is. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today, Jill. This has been a fabulous conversation. It has broadened, I think, how all of us can look at art, and I'm just so thrilled that you could be here with us. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Have fun. (laughs) Happy holidays. Thank you. The Quilting Arts Podcast is part of Quilting Daily and Golden Peak Media, and our executive producer is Jared Mayer. To view our show notes with images, links, descriptions, and more, visit quiltingdaily.com. And you can always reach out with an email at qapodcast at goldenpeakmedia.com. Again, thank you for listening.